Well, I'm excited to be joined by Lynn Myers today. Lynn is a researcher, he's an author, and uh, he's really become a friend of late. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today on Megalithic Marvels. Oh, Derek, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate your work, and uh, it's good to be your friend. I'm glad to meet you on the Egypt trip. And by the way, the plug right off the bat, there's another one coming up next year. <laughs> if you've never been, it's on your bucket list. Man, you need to do it because it's awesome. Hey, thanks for that shameless plug. Uh, I guess it wasn't <laughs> shameless. It wasn't shameless because yep. you gave the plug. But uh, there you go. Yeah, you and I first met just this last February on our first annual Megalithic Marvels of Egypt tour. And I just felt like, man, we, we connected in so many different ways, had some great conversations on the trip. Um, and then uh, I eventually recruit you to be an admin in our Facebook group because <laughs> you were, I saw that you had joined. Yeah. And then after seeing some of your great posts, uh, I basically recruited you to write an article uh, for megalithicmarvels.com. And and when you sent me the draft, dude, it was this huge uh, article, <laughs> like 16 pages. And I'm thinking, this dude's a serious writer. And uh, it was so great. We had to break it into two uh, articles, which we're going to talk about today. And then the next thing I know is, as I'm publishing these articles, you're announcing that you are actually a, an, an author and have a book on Amazon. Like, dude, what is going on? You're full of surprises. <laughs> it's it's just all happening quick. Uh, I've got a uh, biblical worldview, as you know. And uh, when we were on the trip, uh, it was it was one of those times that uh, I say is my terminology a God thing. Uh, our I, I loved our host and our guide, uh, the guide of Egypt, Muhammad Ibram, uh, just a great guy. Uh, he is, uh, he was asking questions and was saying biblically this, biblically that would start off. And I'd, I had made up my mind. I was not going on that trip to teach. I was going on a trip to learn, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I, so I wasn't going to say anything. And then he asked a question about the Bible. Then one, the, right out, this is like the first day. So I answered it and I thought, well, here I go. I've alienated everybody on the group. I said, everybody thinks I'm a crazy man. And next thing I know, Derek walks up and he goes, no, we're, that's exactly what I believe. That was right on. And of course, from that time on, uh, I spent a lot of time answering questions and uh, Derek and I became very good friends. And uh, I, I, it's a privilege to count him as a friend. But we are aligned on so much of this stuff. Uh, but it's, it's just a it's just a great time. Uh, I've been speaking at some different Bigfoot conferences uh, where I started out. Uh, fun story on that. Uh, my brother was going to be a speaker at a local Bigfoot conference, and I went to support him. And the guy that was running the conference, uh, he runs conferences all over the southeast, and uh, he uh, came up to me and was talking to me, and I started talking about this stuff. Start talking about the biblical worldview of this and how that fit in with cryptids and UFOs and all of this. And right in the middle of the conversation, uh, he just says, stop. And I thought, uh-oh, made him mad. You know, that's, that's it. And he goes, can you do a presentation in the next few minutes? And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess. <laughs> so that was my first presentation. He came up very kind and asked me questions. And since then, I've spoken at several of his conferences. And uh, I kept getting requests for putting the information into a book because it was resonating with people. Uh, even folks from MUFON were coming up and uh, I had a director from the Southeast come up and tell me that uh, what I had presented was in his words, the closest to the truth of anything he's ever heard. Uh, so I was very uh, complimented by that. And uh, most of the time I'm not received as well uh, for my, uh, my beliefs, but uh, it was, uh, it's been a good time, and that's why I published a book, so that I could get out the truth. I, I see a lot of the things that's happening as part of a great deception that's coming, and having this book available to say, look, this can help you through that. From a Christian perspective, this can help you understand what's going on, and that's why the book came about as more of a ministry. Uh, the article was an absolute blast to write, and uh the reason I, I it divided so well into two parts is uh, the first part of it, before I talked about who did it, you really had to put some basis into why do we even need to look at who did it? Uh, what what are the stones? You know, how is it moved? What did they do? 
And of course, on our page, we have a lot of folk that talk about geopolymer and things like that. So I felt I needed to address that first. So yeah, that was the let first me, shot. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me let me jump in real quick because I sure. um, again, you're full of surprises. Here, here I'm on this tour with you, not not realizing you're this this big writer, this now author. <sighs> I see. So, and then it was cool. I just want to ask you one more thing about your book before we get into the articles about sure. Gail Palmer and um, Genesis Genesis six worldview of the Bible. So, your bio in your book says uh, you're you're a retired data architect for a Fortune yeah. fifty company. You hold a master's degree in theology. You uh, currently teach. Uh, occasionally, it sounds like at a local seminary, right. and then your book. Uh, just so we're clear for people who may not know, is called UFOs, Cryptids, and the Bible. Quite a title. So two things. One is, uh, I think I saw you mention that this thing was in the category it's in was selling pretty good. Any updates on that? And then where can people find it before we get into the, your articles you wrote for Megalithic Marvels? We can find a book on Amazon. You look up my name, and I think if you look up Lynn Myers and then UFO, that book pops up. But if you have to put the entire name, it's uh, Lynn Myers, UFOs, Cryptids, and the Bible. Uh, you can get it right now if you've got a Kindle Unlimited. You get it for free. Uh, if I think it's, I forget what the price is, but it's relatively cheap. I bought it, actually. I bought it uh, on Kindle. Uh, the paperbacks are supposed to be at my house. The publisher's been real bad to drag their feet on this one, but uh, uh, the, I'm supposed to have paperbacks on it soon. And once I get the physical paperbacks, uh, they should be available on Amazon as well within, as I'd say, the next month, uh, the, the paperbacks will be available. You bought your own book on Kindle? Yeah, why not? You know, <laughs> <laughs> somebody had to. <laughs> But as far well, I, as sales and where I'm at, I don't I don't really know. No. Uh, I actually sent an email to my publisher yesterday and says, I, I don't know any of this stuff. How do I find this stuff out? And they were like, oh, yeah, we were supposed to tell you, but we never have. And I said, OK, good. So Very cool. one day I'll find out. Yeah, I want to definitely ask you more about your Bible because I think or your Bible, your book, because I think <laughs> it'll dovetail with the second article you wrote. Um, so, OK, let's set this up for listeners. So. You and I both have this fascination of the ancient past. We go to Egypt. Um, we basically have this megalithic marvels uh, buffet in Egypt, and we see all these yes. incredible sites. And again, what's cool about our megalithic marvels tours is our guide Muhammad takes us to the parts of the site that reveals what we would call evidence for lost ancient technology, whether it's yes. laser-like cuts or drill holes that are ancient, but are precision. And so then, you know, you and I keep running together in our Facebook group, which we're sharing all these photos and articles. And, and so one thing we keep seeing is this geopolymer movement, right? It's, it's like growing. And um, I want to say right off the bat, I, I'm not a hundred percent opposed to geopolymer. I think there's um, room for that maybe in the ancient past and how they built some of this stuff. But a lot of these people come off very um, passionate, which is there's nothing wrong with passion, but then it's almost full of rage. If you begin to write anything other than this is Geo Palmer, like this crowd gets mad at you and yeah. they write you vicious messages. And it's like, Whoa, where's this coming from? Like, like, I, I got no problem with Geo Palmer. Let's look at the evidence. Let's talk about it. But it, I don't know. that That's kind of what sets you off is then it's like they're in your face if you're not 100% saying everything's Geo Palmer. So I started to see how you would um, converse with some of these in the group. And then when I asked you to write the article, lo and behold, what's it about? It's Geo Palmer versus ancient machine-like tech. So so give us a little background of why you wanted to write this article and then tell everybody who may not be aware, what is this geopolymer movement? And then we'll get into the article. Okay. Uh, what made me want to uh, write that first part of it is we had to differentiate between types of architecture, uh, which is extremely important. For instance, you can take mud and straw and make a brick. You can put 
a pitch coating on the outside of it and make it waterproof. There are building techniques out there that, that were used and, and built large buildings with it. Uh, the Romans came along, according to history, archaeology, and came up with cement. With the geopolymer, this is a pre-cement version of cement. The geopolymer folks say that there were these techniques used to where you crushed up sandstone and limestone and you made these large blocks. And that's the geopolymer. And they say, you know, it, it, it looks just like a block that you'd cut out of a sandstone quarry. Well, there's some questions about does it look just like it? Uh, Obviously, they, they go into, you can use an electron microscope and see this and this. Well, yeah, it's made of that crushed up material, so it'll have the same composition, if you will. So it's not a surprise. But the question, and the reason I wrote the art, this part of the article was, I wanted to differentiate between uh, choosing this way or that way and understanding that both of them are extremely valid. You've got a 70-ton granite block. Can't do geopolymer with granite. Now, you can use the part of it to where they call stone softening, and we've talked about that some in, in the article, that uh, there are some current research even that says that some plants uh, in South America can be used to soften certain types of stone. Now, whether it is granite or not, I don't know. But let's just say you can in Easter Island, they said there was a sonic method used. Uh, their, their legends say a sonic method was used to, to move the statues. Uh, we're seeing things happening with sound and sonic waves that are, are astounding out there. Did they have some sort of capability to use sound to move objects? Uh, uh, because that's one of the questions that we have, uh, you know, we, we look at, pieces of the pyramids and saying, well, maybe they were used to create energy waves of some sort in the past. That was one of the hypotheses that, that came out and there was some good evidence behind it. Did they use energy waves? Well, the type of energy waves, we, we can't look at it and say, well, it must have been used for this and it must have been used for that. No, it was an energy wave. We don't know what they used it for. They could have melted stone. They could have used plants to melt stone. But did they melt every stone? Did they, did they do, you also have to look at the difference in what can be done and is it possible to do it at the scale? This is why I included the thing about the Japanese program that came in and tried to rebuild on the pyramids. It was impossible at scale for them to do it. They could do it at a small level, but they had to leave the granite out. They had to leave, they had to, even doing it with limestone, they couldn't do it at scale. Uh, and, and there's a lot of reasons that, well, they didn't have the manpower, they didn't have the time, didn't have the money, didn't have blah, 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 and all these pharaohs did. Okay, great. But even if you could, could do all of that and build something that size, it's still made out of block. And maybe they used geopolymer. I, I don't say they didn't for the casing stones on the outside. Uh, I do know that it's hard for me to believe that they could create a concrete or a slurry. Uh, I've worked with concrete before, and uh, we back in my part of the or my part of the country we call it mud mixing. And when you're mixing that mud, it's uh, it's the concrete that comes out or the cement that comes out is, is just crystalline and and, and dirt. Uh, and there's possible, I guess, if you left the chunks in there, you'd have seashells and stuff like that. And as you and I know, when we walked around the pyramids, there were seashells all in that stuff. So. Something. Yeah, that was fascinating to see. Amazing. You, the fact that, that you could see the seashells uh, just clear as a bell. You didn't have to make them out. or, or It was just, that's what that is. It's no doubt. And it's not just one or two of them. It's, it's everywhere. So how they kept those seashells intact when they created the cement or the liquid form of it before they put it in a, a block and made it into a thing. I don't know how you would do that. To me, that's a miracle too. It's like, uh, uh, I won't get into that, but I just say that's, that's, that's a big deal too. But, uh, but I don't think that you can easily say there was no geopolymer used anywhere. I think, yeah, they probably were. But to say it's all geopolymer, I think, is doing a disservice to the science that we have on it now because there's a difference between 
taking a one-ton block and lifting it and a 70-ton block and setting that thing in in a precise astronomical alignment with drill holes in it. Like you said, we pointed those things out to where you could see the striations of the drill as it had cut down in there. You could see that. How do you do that? You certainly don't do it with a piece of copper. Again, not to say that the ancients didn't maybe use some kind of ancient cement in forming or shaping some of these massive blocks. But that doesn't answer the question of why do we see these saw or laser-like cuts in this incredibly hard stone, granite. Right. Or the core drill holes are even almost maybe more fascinating because, like you said, you can see the striations inside. Yes. Um, you can see the millimeter uh, of how this 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 drill was spinning or whatever this was. So, again, that I don't see, I haven't read yet where the geopolymer theorists answer, what's that doing? You know, how yeah, is that crafted? And then you referenced in your article, um, even who was it? Let's see, it was Graham Hancock. Yeah. Yeah, he mentioned, you referenced him about, he said it's noteworthy that within the blocks used to build the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, we can see these fossil shells. And so it's difficult to understand how the fossils could have survived the grinding up process used to create the slurry uh, used in the creation of the geopolymer stone. So right there is two kind of, seems like problems for that. Is there any other um, problems you see in your mind with the geopolymer method as, as far as for those who say this is the only way all of this was done? Oh, yes. Uh, first of all, there is the, there's the fact that we know where the granite blocks came from. They came from the Aswan Quarry. We know the makeup of those blocks. We, we, we can look at them at, at a, an, an infinite level, and we know that the, from the geology, they came from Aswan. They were cut at Aswan. They were transported from Aswan. We've got the unfinished versions of it to where they stopped it and, and, and stopped work on them there. We know they came from there. They weren't it. Why would I build a 70-ton block in a mold at a quarry hundreds of miles away from where I was going to use it? Well, you wouldn't. Why would I? So if I built it on site, how do you go about doing that and keeping why would you do that and keep the look the same there's no way that you could build that out of granite on site and if you were building it on site why would you then have to cut it afterwards why would you not build it the way you want it to look to the dimensions that you want to fit into the space but that's not what we see we found those pieces of granite that we know came from Aswan we, we there, there's just there's no doubt on that scientifically we know that's where they came from and then we see those slices in it we, we remember the one that we saw that i thought was amazing that had been thrown away at a corner road had been chipped off and there was a cut and you could see where the cut got offline it just started drifting to one side and it's like they would look at the yeah we can't use that when they dumped it over there but something cut through that and they just discarded it if they were doing all of that stuff with it, why would you just not reuse it for something else? Yeah, no, great point about Aswan Quarry. For those who may not know, all of the pink granite that you see in the Great Pyramids or any of the megalithic temples like the Valley Temple, this is all coming from one place. There's only one place in Egypt where this pink granite comes from. And like Lynn said, it's Aswan. And I mapped it. If my memory serves me right, it's 11 hours by car from Giza all the way south down past Luxor to Aswan. This is craziness that that's where the stone is coming from. Okay. Think of just today in, in modern times. I'm thinking of like the um, unfinished obelisk that still sits in the Aswan Quarry. I think right. it's 1,200 tons or something. In the year 2022, if we wanted to move that to Giza from where it is in Aswan, 11 hours by car, think of think of the 
what you would need to move this 1200 ton piece of granite, right? The earth movers, our greatest machines. It would be, I don't know if it would be possible. It might be. Okay, but now go back to thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, And then when you see the the unfinished obelisks in this quarry, again, back to kind of the advanced tech side of things, wasn't it crazy to see those one meter wide scoop marks totally surrounding these unfinished obelisks? And then you look up to the wall from where the scoop marks come and there's a dark reddish line, which according to Muhammad, our guide, he believes this indicates excessive heat almost due to an excessive, uh, an ultrasonic cutting tool that was almost scooping it out like ice cream. And that is, Nuts. it is. And one of the things that I, I worked in retail for a long time, a lot of my years were in retail and uh, I worked in all the aspects of it through the transportation and everything. And what people are not putting into their thought processes is the whole soup to nuts on this. That not only do I have to cut it, but I got to lift it and put it on something with wheels or rollers or whatever. I have to move that miles from where that is using some sort of force. I have to, I have to physically roll that down. I've got to take it across different terrain. In, in the mountains, it's up and down stuff. I've got to roll it up and down. Then I've got to get down to the to the shore, and I've got soft, sandy soil to roll it. Well, you could put down logs, okay? Great. You've got to move, again, 70 ton at, at the average inside of the pyramid, 70 ton granites. you got to move them across that sandy area and lift it again and load it on a boat steady enough to where it doesn't tip the boat or sink either side of the boat. Well, yeah, you build two or three boats. Okay, great. But how do you get it from the ground to the boat? And then you reverse the process when you get it downstream. There, there is more than just cutting it and stacking it. There is the, as you pointed out, by car, it's that long. Maybe a little faster by ship, but still, the, the 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 transportation, the logistics behind that is just incredible. So then you get it there. The stones have to be cut. We saw we saw inside the pyramid, if you remember, and I'm sure you do because it was amazing. The the cuts would be this wide going straight up and down. And then over here you'd be you'd have a twin set. And you look at it, and you can obviously see they had slid a block, perfectly cut, right down into that to block that area off. And it was made for blocks to slide in and set down on. You're doing that not once or twice, but thousands of times with blocks that we can't move technologically today. We're not just stacking them in there and, you know, putting them in like bricks. Because there's another thing people think about. They aren't just making a tall triangle. It's not just stacked in there. It is aligned perfectly with, uh, right. with, with ley lines, with, with, uh, with uh, celestial objects and events. It is aligned perfectly, not only just with one, but with multiple and at certain times of the year, it's got to hit just right and do that. These blocks had to be placed perfectly. The science behind that, the logistics to accomplish that science, I find it difficult to believe that we can pull off that today. And again, going back to the article, what the Japanese did, and I think it was 79, they basically used sandstone and built a triangle temple they just stacked it all in together and built a triangle that looked like the well it was a third to size but it looked like the the pyramids and they were going to use manual labor just to show oh yeah this can all be done by men they had a hundred guys to move a one-ton block that's really important 
a hundred guys to move a one ton block. Couldn't do it. Ended up using helicopters and it was one time an airplane and it's it just proved that the one ton okay now you're you're changing from one ton limestone from a quarry that we know is closer or even if you're using geopolymer building it on site but you're building millions of those things at ton of a one ton and a two ton a piece you're placing them over a granite structure that you built, all of a sudden, all of this stuff just starts, wait a second, I don't know that we can pull that off today. The science behind that, the someone had that knowledge to build it. And I don't think it was the ancient Egyptians. I think this was prehistory. I think the ancient Egyptians very well may have built the limestone to sit on the outside of it. And cut the hole. They may have done a lot of that stuff. But one of the things that Mohammed kept showing us that I really appreciated, he would take us to a place and he'd say, is this dynastic? We know this is dynastic. Is this the same thing? You know, and it's like those kids game, you know, is this the same as this? And we'd look at sculptures, for instance. That was of a king. So this isn't like a bunch of Boy Scouts getting together and chipping something out. This was like the best artisans that they had. And they would right. have a statue chipped out there. And it would be something that is that I would look at and marvel. That's amazing. And then right beside us, you'd have something that was 10 times bigger than that, made out of granite. And it was like uh, I, I've had the, the, the fortune of looking at some of Da Vinci's work uh, in uh, Italy. Uh, David. You can see the vein, you can see the blood veins in his arm, and here in in the the temples that we looked at there in the Pharaoh, you could see the musculature of his arm. It wasn't down to the level of Da Vinci, but in scale, it was so much bigger than Da Vinci. But it was at the artistic level of something like that. So I'm looking at this one that I know was built in the, in the Egyptians, and like, well, what happened here? If I'm the king, I'm going to say, yeah, just build me something. Do the best you can over here. You know, send the eighth graders out and do that one. You know, that, that did yeah. not happen. Did not happen. So there's I'm glad something you, there. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up um, the Japanese team in 78 who attempts to reconstruct, you know, the Great Pyramid of Giza. And uh, I think they were called the, the Nippon or Nippon Corporation. For those who may not know. And again, we'll link Lynn's article in the show notes of this video or podcast so that you can read it and see these pictures. But uh, they think they're going to prove to the world that, you know, hey, here's how the Great Pyramids were built, right? And I love how you, in the article, share how they attempted to use all the basic tools uh, that they thought were used, you know, ramps, labor force, uh, to create sophisticated fittings of limestone blocks. But in the end, it proved too difficult with the primitive methods and they had to resort to modern, what we call modern means today to create their small model, uh, which was just 60 feet in height. So their pyramids just 60 feet in height and they had to resort to, like you said, uh, helicopters and everything to, to move and build and lift this stuff. And um, moving the rock from the quarry was planned to be done by 100 locally hired laborers. But in the end, they had to use trucks and steamboats. Ramps were used first uh, to haul up the two and three ton blocks, but finally planes and helicopters were used later to move the blocks. And so again, when you when you consider that the Great Pyramid has approximately two million blocks um, of the sizes used in the Japanese experiment, it's just crazy to think how the ancients did this. And, and even one of the things about that too, I found interesting. I, I hear all the time about ramps, ramps, ramps. I've always heard that. Well, they just built built ground up on the outside and you had ramps that wrapped around the, the building, the pyramid, and they got it built and then they tore all that sand down and moved it all away. Voila, they've got the building that. But then Graham Hancock put out, and I thought that was interesting. I mean, this guy's a giant as far as I'm concerned. He knows his stuff. How long did he say that that ramp would have to be longer than the Giza pyramid itself? 
for that that the physics behind it again down to what you can and cannot do the physics behind it that you cannot move a 70 ton granite block that length to that height unless the 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 ramp was longer than the Giza plateau that's that shook me it was like even if it goes around in a circle the length of it around that building it and and the even he even talked about the incline mathematically the incline can't be but so much it can't be this it's got to be this or you physically can't do it the physics are just you just can't do it and i found that very very interesting uh do i believe that they use ramps <laughs> absolutely uh I know that they they shown one of the places, and it's one of the things that I disagreed with. Uh, they showed a, a a temple entryway to a temple, and it was monstrous. It cut out of a piece of granite, and and it was monstrous, and it was laying on its side. And they said, you know, no army can tear that down. Well, I'm like, no, no, yes, we can. Anybody can tear down some. Uh, you put enough horses on it, you put enough sappers underneath of it, and the sappers is a medieval term that they would be the one that would go under in a siege and dig underneath the foundations of a wall so that the wall would collapse. And they've been doing that Middle Ages and, and beyond. Uh, the, the Bible talks about sieges that went on all the time. So you put enough sappers and enough people pulling against it, you knock it over. But the question, so the question is not about that. The question is about how did they put it up originally? Tearing down is one thing, but building to the precision and the alignments that that thing had to be right. in, that's the question. That's, that's what I love to look at and, and see where that is. I, just, I liked your, yeah, I loved your point about in your article, you know, you basically say whether or not the ancient Egyptians were able to create limestone blocks using some sort of geopolymer technology, we still have to deal with the fact that they had to lift these massive blocks of pure granite weighing 70 tons to heights of hundreds of feet above ground and position them perfectly in place. And I love, love what you said a little bit a few minutes ago. The Great Pyramid is not just a bunch of blocks stacked on top of each other in a triangle. When you go inside this thing, it's it's a megalithic masterpiece of mathematical brilliance. It's yes. it's like a technological structure device. You you can feel how it doesn't even feel like it was uh, meant for humans to be walking through. It's when you walk through <laughs> it that wasn't grand, meant for this human to walk through it. I tell you that. <laughs> right. I tell people, okay, I had a light backpack on. When you're going down these 300-foot passageways, steep passageways up and down, it's backbreaking. You're bent over, doubled over. And this is while holding on to modern-day rails they've put in there in wooden plank stairs. How would the ancients have just cruised through there on their way to a funeral procession carrying heavy relics, statues, coffins, they would slide right down it like a, a slide on the megalithic uh, smooth slabs, right? And people say, well, that's how they got it down there. They just made a slide and went to, okay, no. Saqqara, perfect example of that. You remember we found the, uh, we found, it's obvious to see it, the, the coffin, the monstrous coffin that was right in the middle of the hallway and it was just stopped there. And it's like, well, I can get it. You can push it down and get it down to the hole it's supposed to go in. But how do you make the turn? Anybody's tried to move a couch into a room that's the door that's too small understands what I'm talking about. And this is what you're looking at here. You look at that and you can't make that turn. You just can't make the turn. So how? And we know that they did it because the other ones are in there. And then you've got this one that's just halfway down the corridor and they stopped. Okay, why? Something, something happened. Something happened. I just got back 
and this is kind of off subject if you don't mind, but I, I just got back from, uh, I, I went on a, a mission trip uh, with the Navajo. Uh, and while I was in New Mexico, uh, the Four Corners region, I took a few days and uh, went and for myself and went on a little vacation. Uh, it was interesting to talk to the rangers. Uh, I was able to go down and, and, and look at some of these. And you could go to uh, Mesa Verde. You could see the Pueblo structures there. And they talked about the, uh, the Kivas, and, and which is a little uh, camp meeting places. It's, it's like a little above ground or below ground, really below ground. And then you'd go down into where uh, the mod more modern ones were. And you can understand from the size of them how it was. And I finally talked to the ranger that was down at the, and I could tell he and I thought a lot alike. I could just tell when I started talking to him because I kind of was took aback. I said, look, when you go out there, you got these little small places that I could, I can stand up in, but just barely. And you come over here and man, that'd be a comfortable place to live. That's great. You could have a picnic in there. That's great. And I said, while I understand that, on a model, they're the same. They're not the same. There's two different purposes for this. There's a different purpose for this and a different purpose for this. And he looked around and he went, just like that. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And then he smiled real big and that's all he wanted to talk about it. But he, yeah. he this is kind of what we're looking at here, guys. You can look at something and say it could have been done. Because we see something else that was done like that. But was it done at the scale and the precision with the logistics and all of those things? And I think that is where the questions really come from. That's where it comes. And we have to take all of that into consideration. And that's why that puts the marvel in megalithic marvels to me. How does that happen? Yeah. Can't wait to go to Peru, by the way. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's that's in the works. Um, a Peru, Peru trip next year, hopefully. Um, you mentioned statues of Egypt. Mm -hmm. This is something I get excited talking about, and I think you'll appreciate it because you. I think it sounds like you had the same revelation. But to me, this was the biggest surprise I had in Egypt. Like I knew, obviously, the pyramids were megalithic. And like you, I believe they were not built by the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC. Right. Um, the dynastic Egyptians were brilliant in their own right. Um, great architects for their time. But like you talk about in the article, when, when we look at the Mohs scale of hardness, the dynastic Egyptians used copper and iron tools at best, which rank, I believe, a three or four on the Mohs scale of hardness. Copper chisels and hammers and iron hammers you can't um you can't shape to precision a granite block with blunt force right and so that's that's one of the biggest because uh the granite i think ranks as an eight or nine on the most scale eight hardest. or nine yeah and now, it's, when you look close yeah. ahead, i'm sorry Derek. Uh, what you're going to get and the reason i want to put this out there is because I've heard the feedback and I've went and, and looked at it. So let me give you an answer to the feedback you're going to get for that. Well, there's a video out there that shows scientists taking a copper saw and sand and cutting a granite block. I went and watched the video. Yeah. But what you'll see is a tremendous amount of frustration. It took them days to get a little ways down into that rock. This isn't what we're talking about. And you can look at it and the cuts are not the same, not close to the same. We're talking about cuts you can't put a card in, that you can't slip a hair in between today after thousands of years. So to say, okay, we could cut it. I'm okay. So we could cut it but we can't cut it to that precision. We can't cut it in that quantity. We can't cut it with that kind of quality. We can't cut it the way it was cut. Right. And I have to put that out there. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. I mean, um, with enough people in time, you could eventually make an indention or some kind of cut in granite, but it's not going to be precision. And here's where I'm going with this. 
we see the pyramids, we see these megalithic temples like the Valley Temple, which clearly had a different purpose and function in the Great Pyramid. I knew all those were megalithic and most likely predated the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC. What I had no idea about was these, what I would call megalithic statues um, that Muhammad pointed out. And I think it was the Ramazeum site in Luxor. This site's dedicated to Ramses II, who was, you know, a dynastic Egyptian, uh, 2500 BC or somewhere around there. And, you know, you look at the site and it's it's amazing. Most of it is dynastic Egyptian architecture. Again, 3000 BC, you see big columns built in sections. You see Ramses statues built in sections. They're all cool, but it's the best they could do was build them in sections yes. and stack them. Yes. You see the hieroglyphs that they were using. And again, it's beautiful, but it's it's kind of crude looking to what you see in granite around the corner. And that is, I'm, I'm thinking of the two statues. There's the, the remnants of the 1,000 ton piece of statue oh. that was badly damaged, but this thing, if it was complete, was over 2,000 tons. This, you could see the muscle tone in it, all crafted from one piece of granite. And you could that still goes, see the, that, pers- yeah, the that precision. Yeah, that goes back to what I was talking about, the uh, looking at Michelangelo work. Uh, it's there, but the scale that you're talking about, we've never seen anything like that to that scale. So... Can someone do that? Should we be surprised that it was doable? Well, no, at a small scale, we could do that. I mean, been proven. But what we saw there, what you're you're talking about, is it's the picture book that we had as a kids. Are these two things alike? And no, they, <laughs> they weren't alike. I'm sorry, yeah, I you, jumped in again. No, it's good. Because then, so... And you guys can go to Megalithic Marvel's um, like Instagram or our Facebook group, and you're going to find these pictures. Just search for the keywords we're mentioning. But at the base of this 1,000-ton statue, and it's just the torso and like shoulders, um, there is, you know, people would say, well, those are just hieroglyphs. But again, it doesn't look like the hieroglyphs of the dynastics over at the temple. These are 3D deep embedded precision symbols that Muhammad theorizes may have been part of the language of the original megalithic builders, the original, original ancient Egyptians. And I think and that's these key. Things, these he things keeps are using the term of reuse. Yeah. And and just to not skip around that, here's what we're talking about. Ramses came in, and no matter where we went, you'd see a Ramses stuck somewhere, carved his name carved somewhere. As these kings would come in, they would say, "You know what? I'm going to make I'm going to make that a little better, and I'm putting my name on it. That's mine now." They reuse and recreate and reclaim, and that's what I believe, and I think Derek does too. Without speaking for him, I think that's what happened. They came in in these places; these these megalithic marvels already existed, and they just refurbished places. Oh yeah, I want to use this as this from now on, and I'm going to put my name on it. But when you get to what you're looking at, those 3D cutouts in the bottom of that, we saw carvings, thousands and thousands, I say millions and not exaggerate, of, of hieroglyphs. But again, looking at what was on the base of that, those 3D cutouts, those two things are not the same. <laughs> They're just not. One, somebody did it. Yeah, we could do that today. It looks good. An awesome craftsman could do that today, and it'd last that amount of time and rock, and it would gorgeous. But the quality and the precision of what you're talking about, where those things were cut in that 3D look, that blows my mind. That looked like it would, I tell you, and you can, it looked like it was done last week. I mean, it looked like it had just been polished. Right. And again, this is rose granite. And the last thing I'll say, and then we'll move to your other article, is the Ramses bust. It was this green grandiorite uh, stone bust of a Ramses head that had been broken off a body. Again, one thing doesn't look like the other. 
this thing is kind of centered in the center of this site, this temple. You go up close, and I'm going to release a video soon of this, and you focus on the face, the eyes, the ear. You can see what looks like laser lines inside the ear hole. The detail is so finite and perfect. Again, a geopalmer method of grinding stuff up. I don't get how that makes that and to where you're going to see laser lines that go into the ear hole. It was so precise, precision, like you've never seen. And again, this is Grandorite, which is right up there with granite on the most scale of hardness. Uh, that blew my mind. Again, so why do you see that stuff at this one site? And then at the same site, you see inferior statues, inferior hieroglyphs in sandstone, which is softer, right? And it looks like we got two different builders here. So Lynn, final word on this subject before we move to your other article. I think that that, what we've talked about here is key. If you'll take time and listen to what, what we've talked about, what we said, we're not saying that they didn't use geopolymer. We're not saying that. They, they probably did. They probably should have been credited with the creation of a cement-like thing before uh, the Romans did. I, I have no problem with that and with saying that. What I'm saying is most of what we see in the, what I would call the stuff that's reused, the pre-dynastic stuff, and, and I would go so far back as to say the prehistory stuff that was in there, you cannot create with the geopolymer. You, you can't. Once you create it, there's a lot of reasons why, and we've talked about them. One of the reasons why is why would you? If you could do it in that easy, simple way, then why would you go to all the trouble to do it the way that it was done, the way that it looks like. So I think you have to really think about that and, and, and see about it. it. It is, we are looking at something that is unexplainable in modern technology. We, we, we can't do it. Did, did they use that pyramid to generate gases? Did they use it to generate uh, microwaves? Did they use it to generate sonics? Did they use it to generate all of this other stuff that we see all across the world? Uh, people say that, uh, well, that's what this was used for. That's what this this did. And, and one of the things in, in Peru, uh, the, the temple with the serpent that goes down the side of it, that if at the, uh, it's a famous temple, I can't think of the name of it, but it's in the square. And at the, the Soltis, it very well may be. You can see the serpent kind of as a shadow. You can see it like crawl down the side of the steps. Oh, you're, you're talking about Chichen Itza, yeah. Yeah, there you go. You can stand in that middle spot, and there's a granite piece there. You can stand there, and remember, this is about a bird and a serpent, and they somehow are able to mix those two, and they call they talk about a plumed serpent. You can stand in that in that one spot and not six feet out from it. It doesn't work. Stand in that one spot and clap your hands, and you can hear it chirp off that temple. I've seen that. And you look at that and say, how did you know to do that? How did you come up with that? The, the math and the complexity behind that. Okay, now take that in your mind and then move it back to where we're talking about in Egypt. Do you think it's logical? that your all-powerful Pharaoh would say, well, yeah, I know you can't cut anything that looks like that. Just do the best you can, boys. No, if you're going to make a statue of me, it better look just like that one right there if that's possible. If you're going to put a bust of mine up, don't set this inferior-looking thing out there and say, well, this is my king, my god, king, Pharaoh, and then have another one sitting right beside of it that, it looks like one was made by an eighth grader and one was made by a, 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 a master, a grand master and put them beside each other. And I mean, that one's cool. They're both cool. 
But as a Pharaoh, am I going to want that? Is that what I'm going to ask? So why do I have this proliferation of the things that is just not as good? Was it, did you, do you think the Pharaoh said, well, just do the best you can, boys. Just get out there and, and do the best you can. But that's not, not what we read historically about who those guys were. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I think that I just ask when you look at this, when you look at the whole geopolymer stone, are the stones melted? Are they moved with sonics? You know, all that stuff is important. And, and yes, take your time to look at that and look at but why does it have to be your way? Why does it have to be one thing? Why can it not be a lot of things mixed together? And I think on most of this stuff, the technology is such that we cannot do it today. We cannot. And leave it at that. Well said. So, um, again, I'm in a link, Lynn's article called Geo- Geopolymer versus Ancient Precision Tech, How Are Megalis Made? in the show notes where possible for this podcast and video. Um, but if I don't, you can just go to megalithicmarvels.com and uh, find this article. It's one of our more recent articles or just search for geopolymer and it'll pop up and you can read his complete article and see the photos. And thanks so much, Lynn, for your time today. We could talk all day, couldn't we, about this stuff? Um, yes. And, and thank you before. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, it's been so great to connect with you on our tour the Facebook group. Shameless plug, if, if you're on Facebook, go find the Megalithic Marvels uh, Facebook group and uh, you can interact with me and, and uh, Lynn there all day. We have a lot of fun. And again, go to Amazon to find Lynn's book, UFOs, Cryptids, and the Bible. Uh, sounds like it's been one of the hot sellers in that category lately. And Lynn, is there any other way people can get a hold of you, follow you? Pretty much through the Facebook group would okay. be the best the Facebook way. Group. Perfect. Yep. That would be and, the best um, way. And uh, Lynn, we want to start, we want to see you post some of these photos from your trip there in the uh, four corners area. So I want to, yeah. I want to see those in the group soon to give us some up close photos of these Kivas and stuff. And, I will. Uh, other than I may, that, I'll give you some stories with that too, you know, <laughs> please do. And, um, other than that, Lynn, thanks for your, for your time, and we'll do this again, hopefully, in the future. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate what you're doing, and congratulations on your 100,000 viewer award from YouTube. That was awesome and well-deserved. Thank you, hey, my friend. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was cool to get a little memento like that, you know, from all the hard work and uh, put it on the wall somewhere. Yeah, right behind you. It'd be a great place there. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you.